Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Congratulations on this film. It's, um, you know, there's always a danger with any sports movie of cliches, of, of a certain type of cliche, you know, that, and this was not what I expected at all. I mean, it wasn't um, I was expecting sort of, you know, the inspirational, upbeat ending, the wisecracking, fast-paced, you know, uh, feeling and it's very different and and really terrific. So could, I guess could you talk a little bit about what you what you sort of set out to do in relation to the the sports film, the baseball movie? Sure, but I should also say congratulations on this renovation. This is unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really incredible. Uh, like you said, I showed my first two films right. here and have you know visited the museum. It's, it's just unbelievable. This. It's like the best theater in New York City. It it really is. Okay, thank you and good night, everybody. (laughs) I mean, this. I I don't think there's is a better theater. I'm not going to argue with that. Yeah, the projection. (laughs) Um. Yeah, I mean, it it is kind of a movie that that asks you to look at things differently. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it would. What kind of sense would it make to adhere to the conventions and tropes of a sports movie or baseball Hollywood movie, something like that? Uh, could you talk a bit about your, I guess, your discussions with Brad Pitt? Because really, at, at the center of this film is, I think, truly an, a remarkable performance by by him. Because it's really a film about his, about it's a character study, and it's really mm-hmm. about a character who's sort of dealing with his past and sort of dealing with his life in a really interesting way. And there's so much going on in his in in very subtle ways in his performance. I think it's really a remarkable performance. So could you talk about how you I guess casting and then really more interestingly to me how you worked with him. Mm. Well, he he was on it before I was. Right. Yeah. And this film has a whole past. Right. But I got a phone call one day um from my agent. I have an agent. Uh, <laughs> You're doing pretty well, Bennett. I mean, yeah. Anyway, it you seems know. weird even saying the words, but um, <laughs> uh, say, you know, do you like baseball? And I said, not, you know, I haven't really followed it since, since I was a kid. And he goes, oh, that's good because it's not really a baseball movie. Right. Uh, if you want to, if you want to look at this stuff, if it interests you, Brad would like to meet. And so I read everything. You know, there were various drafts, and um, there's the book. And uh, I, I read it, processed it, flew to L.A., sat down with Brad, and talked for a few hours about uh, what it is that I thought that I would do, why does he want to do this thing, what, what's the purpose of making this movie, why make this complicated thing complicated, because the book doesn't, I think, lend itself naturally to... Um, a film, you know, it's sort yeah. of a it's sort of a, a business uh, math book in a way. Has anybody who's read the book? Anybody? So it's you know it's it's the bricks of the book are are like case studies of ball players and their stats and things like that. Uh, and what we talked about, uh, from my perspective at least, the the things that grabbed me about Michael Lewis's book 
uh, where the notion of a, of a guy who um, wondered if he was living the wrong life. If he, you know, he had made a decision when he was a kid, there was a big check on the table. And you know, it's a totally true story. Big check on the table and uh, a, a road that most kids would not hesitate to take. And he went down it, and it just didn't turn out. It just didn't pan out. And I think that's something that most people could relate to in some way or another. You know, the getting to an age and realizing that your life is just not the way you might have conceived it or thought about it. And uh, he be you know he began to reflect on that, and uh, because he you know things didn't turn out, and he learned some things and used that knowledge and. I said, you know what? It's about it's a story of a guy who thinks he's trying to win baseball games, uh, but really there's something deeper going on. He's trying to remedy something from the past, and he's trying to, um, you know. The uh, well, you know, one aspect of the film that gives it so much emotional strength is the story with his daughter. Um, and was that something? When did that come about? Or was that something that was sort of cr- drawn out for the movie um, or created? For the film, I mean, obviously he has a daughter in real life, but... You know, I, <laughs> when I started hanging out with Billy, uh, the, the main question I had was, why did you turn down that offer? Right. And I thought, you know, understanding that would help crack the dramatic requirement of making this thing a, a movie. And he said that... Um, that I have a pen behind my ear. He said that (laughs) he said that it wasn't until he flew east to meet with John Henry from uh, the Red Sox that he realized how far a flight that was and how far away that was from his daughter. Yeah. And that kind of, you know, ricocheted around his head and heart for a few days until he figured out that, you know, he, he wasn't going anywhere. And um, could you talk at, at all about what your own emotional connection is? I mean, you've done you know th- you've done like three very different films that are they're all about outside people who are really outsiders mm-hmm. in, in different ways. But mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it seems like he, his character maybe is around the same age as you. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what was there that you connected to in it? Because it, it's very clear that you you really found a way to connect to this mm-hmm. material. Um. Not hack work. <laughs> well, I, mean, I don't really like talking about myself too much. Oh, okay. but, don't worry. Just make but, believe uh, they're not but, here. Uh, and, um, tell but us, you know, yeah. there he he is a character who um, who's who's got some kind of an ambition. Yeah. You know, and I think there's this. You know, he I think he imagines that if only he can do this. You know that there is a really there's a there's a really powerful drive to um, change things up and yeah. do something kind of impossible. You know, um, and and maybe and this is true with I think Capote also, and um, mm-hmm. and I you know I I think I I can relate to making a project all important. You know, and having it at least feel for the time you're doing it like it's um, meaningful. And and could you tell us? I mean, you you brought up the the fact that this film had a sort of history to it before. I mean, and it's no big secret. I mean, people mm-hmm. I think know that 
Steven Soderbergh was mm-hmm. attached to it. And I'm curious about that, not so much for the sort of gossip aspect, but, but to think about how this film got made in Hollywood, because I think it's, uh, um, it's not sort of an easy, easy sell type of movie, perhaps. I mean, I guess having Brad Pitt helps, mm-hmm. right? But, um, but could you talk a bit about what was, what was the history of, of the production before it actually got made? I, I, honestly, I, I, I haven't read the official <laughs> report okay. on it, but it, it, was, it was optioned, you know, maybe eight years ago, something yeah. like that. Yeah. And there was a wave of development that occurred, and then uh, there was a director and a screenwriter, and then they fell off, and Soderbergh came on, and uh, Rosalian came on, and then Soderbergh came on, and then different, you know, and... Uh, it end, it, the thing ended up getting closed down by Sony three days before Soderbergh was meant to begin shooting. And uh, I think there were two slightly inconsistent stories you know, about it, one from the studio side and one from Steven's side. So I'm not even going to yeah. enter into that fray. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it is acknowledged that you know, the studio felt uncomfortable with you know, what Stephen was going to do. Um, when, I, when I read all this stuff and came in and said, this is the thing that I would want to do, it wasn't, no one was saying we want to do this or don't want to do that. It was more like, here's what I would do with it. And uh, if you want to do that, that's great. If not, uh, maybe somebody else is right for the thing. The reason the movie got made is because Brad Pitt wanted the movie made. You know, he yeah. was really passionate about it. Uh, it. It was personal to him. Uh, the moment I, you know, sat down with him, I could tell this thing is going to happen one way or another. It's not a, um, it, it's not a, a standard formula Hollywood movie. And the truth is that Sony could not find a financing partner for it. They do not typically make movies of this size alone mm-hmm. but Brad was really passionate about it and I think they were just happy that there was somebody that Brad would do it with you know yeah. and uh, you know I, when I said talked to him in private I said you know what we're trying to do here is not necessarily yeah. um, you know conventional and uh, he said, well, look, if you, we ever get into, like, tension, just use me and I'll be, the, I'll be your blocker or whatever. Yeah. And uh, he, he definitely stepped in and was like the big brother bully here and there. <laughs> Could you talk at all? This is sort of a hard thing to talk about, but there's something about the tone of the film and the sort of mood you set with the, with the performances um, where you really allow this sort of uh, nuance to come out about interactions between the men. I mean, this is a lot of the film to me is about like sort of how, you know, what it means to sort of ha- be a man and have, have find an identity for yourself and there's conflicting ways of just sort of being in the world. I mean, it's just uh, Brad Pitt's character and Philip Seymour Hoffman's are just mm. always going to be kind of different and never mm. really accept each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you allow this kind of nuance to come out um, in the film, and I don't know if you, if you could sort of talk about how you create that as a director. Um, it's it's very it's there very specifically. Yeah. I mean, part of it's having the roles conceived that way and yeah. having great actors. Yeah. Uh, Jonah Hill also, yeah. you know, different kinds of you know rite of passage, yeah. trial becoming it's a, a real man interesting kind of performance, thing. yeah, 
and each of those guys have possessed what the other guy lacks. Yeah. You know, Billy always had wanted to go to school and, you know, be the first guy from his family to go to college. And Peter, I think, you know, gravitates towards Billy's, you know, machismo or something. Yeah. Now, um, you know, one of the things that I really have to ask about is the sort of realism at the heart of, of this film because you were working with, um, you know, you really follow the sort of true story very closely. I mean, that amazing 20-game winning streak. And and, um, and in the casting, you, you cast actors who were very close to the real players. And that is is really interesting because you, when you're watching the film, you could really believe that these are, like, this is the real team almost. It sort of feels. But could you talk about sort of casting the, the baseball and dealing with the real baseball aspect of the film? Um, you know, the actor who plays Hatterberg, the guy who hits the home run, yeah. his name is Chris Pratt, and he's on a show called Parks and Recreation. He's the only actor, yeah. you know, who plays baseball. Everybody else is a baseball player who does some acting, and many yeah. of them for the first time. Um, Chris's line about it is that, he, that, that our team was actually so good that he th- he thinks and I agree that it could probably beat uh, any other team from any other baseball movie, <laughs> yeah. and probably the Mets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's a, I couldn't. <laughs> it's a joke. It's a joke. Good. We love the Mets. Little little side note about the Mets. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, the, ca- the character that Jonah Hill's character is based on, the guy that, you know, Peter yeah. Brand is based on is Paul De Podesta, who is, you know, now works for the Mets under Sandy Alderson, yeah. who was, you know, who's now the GM there, who was Billy Bean's predecessor, and really the guy who introduced Billy Bean to uh, alternative ideas, hmm. you know. Uh, also, J.P. Ricciardi. So the Mets really are... Um, with the exception of Billy himself, have got the original like brain trust yeah. of the original Sabermetrics Club, and um, unfortunately, uh, every other team is sort of like caught on as well. So it, it's sort of. And, and I'm curious, what, like, what your feeling is about this whole approach to Sabermetrics, and because in a way, it's sort of against again, sort of the, the cliche in most older baseball movies, it would always be the. Uh, you know, the ones who were right were the ones who were the experienced scouts who were out there and just sort of had a feeling for the game. And this is like a little bit different. I don't know, I'm just wondering what you think about this approach to baseball. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's part of our reality that, that, that science is forever encroaching, you know, into the mysterious romantic, you know, <laughs> dimensions of our lives. And it, it's a game that can really be studied, you know, under a microscope and with huge computers. And uh, it, it, it can be, you know, truths can be distilled to a finer and finer degree. And it could be you know, more and more turned into a science. Um, and at the same time, it's a game that, uh, you know, persists in having more superstition than I think any other sport. Would anybody disagree with that? I mean, yeah. it's an incredibly superstitious sport. And the reason, I think, is that, that inexplicable things seem to happen in this game. 
and it just seems to defy, you know, ultimate explanation. You know, yeah. no one's ever going to master it. And the, the the irony in it for me is that Billy Bean, who I think is a little bit resentful and maybe even hostile to the old school, traditional, romantic, you know, view of the game, yeah. uh, sought to distill it to numbers, you know, and equations and formulas and um, wouldn't even watch the games. Uh, totally true. And... Um, kind of scoffed at anybody who had a romantic view of the game. But in his effort to to distill it to something so dispassionate, he created one of these inexplicable, unbelievably romantic moments where the team with the least amount of money goes on to win more games in a row than any other team in the American League for 103, in their 103-year history. Yeah. And the guy who does it, Art Howe, you know, the old traditional old timer, you know, like from his gut, turns to Hatterberg, the guy he's been trying to keep on the bench, and says, How'd he grab a bat? Right. The dude that Billy Bean hired because he sees a lot of pitches and walks a lot, and that he hits a dinger to like right center. Right. It's like, you know, in a historic game, it's, yeah. it's, it was, it's one of those moments, you know? Yeah. It's like in my lifetime, it's in baseball, and I've, I have seen a lot of baseball. It's just one of those unbelievable moments. And I think the game seems to just defy, you know, complete explanation. And, and that and a million other things have come along to kill baseball periodically. And it just doesn't seem to happen. Yeah, this really, like, it feels like a golden age before all the stadiums were named after mm. corporations. I mean, I think Oakland Coliseum became, is it Overstock.com Field or something? Wasn't that true? I, I, didn't, I think so. Really? Yeah. So um, I, that's I, ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, not quite as romantic to go down to Overstock.com, you know. So um, anyhow, I. I um, but you really feel in the, in the and then I'll open it up to the audience. But you really feel in in the performance that there's something about what was uh, with, with the Billy Bean character like what was expected of him, he was going to be the sort of golden boy hero. Mm-hmm. And there was a romanticized idea about what he was going to become. Yeah. And you really feel in the performance that his, this like new approach to baseball has to do with him sort of dealing with his past. Yeah, like there's, there's this great sense of backstory in, in, in what Pitt is doing. Yeah, there's a little bit of a fuck you, you know. Yeah. Right. To that way of thinking. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so um, any Mets fans or anybody else who wants to ask a question? Go ahead. I, I had a question because the performances are fantastic. And I'm really wondering how you work with the actors. Like, do you, are you very hands-on with them with a lot of rehearsal? Or do you just kind of like let them go do their thing? Yeah, if you could talk about your working process, your rehearsal process with the actors. Um. It's, you know, just a sort of like whatever works approach and you get to know everybody and how they work and where their levers are. But it always begins with an understanding of what it is we're going for. Brad, I think, is a character actor, Hmm. fundamentally. You know, I think almost every role he's done is a character role. And and this is a a leading role. And Hmm. what, what a leading man does is he leads you through the story. Like the performance tells the story. And so you have to collaborate 
with that with your leading actors or actor in this case to you know what is it that what's the what's the story we're telling what's the movie we're making and so you know you have to share that and if you don't there's going to be a problem you know but um as far as getting the performances Brad works very differently than Philip Seymour Hoffman who works very differently than Jonah Hill and uh throw in a bunch of real baseball players and you know uh, but it's just whatever work. We did a lot of improvisation. In some cases, we did a lot of takes. Uh, but it's just about staying in the room until you, you feel we've revealed it. Could you talk a bit about, about Jonah Hill, that performance? Because it's it's really... I don't think he's done anything quite like this. And, and uh, there's a real, like... I don't want to say there's a real weight to the character because I don't mean uh, uh, that that's not going to stand right, but there's like a real sort of gravity to the performance. Um, how did how did he you and him find that? Um, you know, Jonah is a genius. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really is a very very brilliant person, and I and I knew him for some years. I knew him for about five years, mm-hmm. and in real life, he's very very funny, but you know, like the funniest of people, more they're more often not funny, you know, not trying to be funny. Uh, mm-hmm. And he has enormous sensitivities and his own, you know, kind of ambitions. And, um, you know, we, we, we talked about this thing and he's sort of in the midst of a personal transformation in his life, in his career. And, you know, he, he just lost a tremendous amount of weight I saw him today. It's it's unbelievable to even see, hmm. but you know he was ready for something like this. And uh, again, I think it's just a matter of just at least beginning with understanding like what's happening. Who is this person? And you know, what's the scene up here? Like what's happening superficially? Well, you're you know pretending to you know fire somebody. You're learning. You know he's yeah. tasking you on that. But what's really happening here is your boss is clocking that you've got a weakness and he kind of cares about you and he's going to father you a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it's not comfortable, but you, you understand that this is going to happen. You know? Mm-hmm. And, okay, I get that. And, and that scene was his idea, actually. It's mm. great. Okay. Over here? So the question is, why does the Paul de Batista character have a different name when everything else is sort of based on real people? Yeah. Um, Paul asked that his name be taken off, you know, out of the out of the film. He he did not want his name associated with. He did not want to be depicted. He was incredibly helpful to us. And I spoke to him many times and for hours, and he even drove up to Los Angeles, and he went through great pains to explain, this is not personal, this is not about you, the movie, Jonah, anything like that. Uh, And I've discussed this with, with Jonah. I think that Paul is just a person who does not like to be defined. You know, it's a very, I think discomforting thing 
And we did not have to take his name. We could have used his name. We were, you know, we legally did not have to change it, but, you know, he asked. So just, uh, you know, out of respect for him, we did it. Um, He saw the movie last night, uh, and he called me up afterwards, and we talked for a long time. And, uh, you know, I did not ask him where, you know, he able to go back in time when he put his name on it. But, you know, what he did say was that he really liked the movie and that it made him very sentimental for this time and proud of what, you know, they accomplished. And though the you could pick apart any scene, he goes, well, he didn't say that, and it didn't go down exactly like this, and this is sort of, you know, heightened and drama. He goes, that, you could pick it apart, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, it, it actually communicates, you know, what they did and the essence of the thing. Okay, over here. Yes. I I honestly I don't know. You know, uh I, I see you're wearing an A's um hat. So I'm going to guess you read the book. Uh I think Paul was I think Paul comes across very well in the book, but he was never comfortable with it. He was made very awkward by by that. And I think if he could go back in time, he would probably stay out of the book and never have spoken to Michael. That's just kind of who he is. He's, he's, he's really behind the scenes. Okay, just have time for a few more. Go ahead. Oh, were those re- were there real scouts? I um, mean, the, the, yeah, uh, three of them were not. Everybody else was, and the 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 elder fella with a hearing aid. His name is Phil Pote, and he's been a scout for fifty years uh, for the Seattle Mariners. They call him the the Ancient Mariner, <laughs> and uh, he saw the movie last week. Could, yeah, could you talk about, of course, Aaron Storkin, uh, I guess, you know, what that collaboration was yeah. like? At- um, when I came, came on, uh, Steve Zalian had written a draft that is fundamentally, you know, the structure that we have. And uh, it, was, it was heavier and kind of darker. Um, more of a baseball movie, you know, and uh, what Sorkin did was, uh, you know, apply his genius for um, haiku and comedy haiku. He sprinkles this little magic dust on where you have um, in in a turn of a phrase or a setup and a punchline not only is there humor, but it, he, he has an ability to, just in a haiku way, communicate uh, a thousand words in a moment, in a beat, in a joke. You know, the whole Fabio thing. Like, he could, he could, de- he could descend into that scene, which, by the way, is, is largely improvised, but, like, he offered that up. 
mm-hmm. and you put it in there and like you can build a scene around if you, you know there's the you know there's rich teams poor teams 50 feet of crap and then there's us who's fabio boom boom guys do your thing you know and uh and we put that in so uh but both of these guys are obviously incredible writers and uh and and uh i think you they're kind of delineated in the, in the movie itself, which can be serious and could have some weight. And then there are laughs and then it could, you know, turn just as quickly back. And, uh, you could probably, you know, point, you know, you could probably guess who is who in the movie, but I think, you know, I think that's what the movie wanted. And I think they were like really beautiful compliments to each other. Mm-hmm. Okay. Back there. Yeah, go ahead. So uh, it was such a pain in the ass <laughs> to try to, because that's where the heart is, you know. Like you want to be with these guys, and you know the conventions mm-hmm. and the tropes of of a baseball movie got that way because there's great power in it, there's great potency to being with these guys, and yet the story really was in the front office. But um, you know, Billy famously did have that distance from his uh, players. And I think if you were GM and you got to deal them like baseball cards, it's, it's hard to get too tight with them. But um, hope, I mean, hopefully it, we struck a balance. And, the, you know, the guy who Billy fires, you know, for the Rincon, after he acquires Rincon, he's got to let Mike Magnante go, the, the fellow with the uh, braces. Uh, he, in actuality, and I wish that we had found a way to establish this, but there's just the movie's already dense enough, and there's so many things that have to be paired off. But in actuality, Mike Magnante was a very good and old friend of uh, Billy's, and uh, you know the coupling of the exuberance of holy cow, they got Ricardo Rincon, Mike, I gotta let you go, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, you've thrown your last pitch. Um, I, I want to, since we, we really have to wrap up, unfortunately, because you have another event to go to, but I just wanted to... If not you as say, great as this one, I want to say. Right, of course. Um, I, if you could just say a word about, about, vis, about the sort of look and the style of the film, I mean, because you're, you're so, such a strong, uh, you're so strong visually as, mm. as a director. All three of your films are very distinctive. Mm. Uh, this really had a sort of mood to it. Um, you know, you sort of think of baseball films as being all like, having all like bright lighting and mm-hmm. you were able to sort of bring a, a kind of edge and a kind of mood, mood mm-hmm. to the way you filmed in the stadium, in the locker room. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you could talk at all, bit of, at all about your visual approach. Um, well, yeah. for, first of all, it's, it's, um, I definitely favor movies that don't shove the movie down your throat, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, and I'd like, I prefer to observe the story as opposed to tell you the damn story. And mm-hmm. my favorite films are the ones that just feel conscious. You know, you feel like you're in somebody's brain. 
you know, the frames themselves feel conscious, like that it's, it's there in front of you. You feel it. And yet it's, it's not, you know, it's not didactic. I, I like Kubrick's films and Hitchcock's films or, yeah. you know, the Maisels. I remember the first time I saw Salesman, hmm. I was on PBS and I was a kid. I had no idea what I was looking at, but the movie started and you see a guy walk up to the house, a Bible salesman knock on the door. And right at that moment where you just have been conditioned to expect voiceover or something and it did not come, I just got sucked in. I'm like, oh my God, nobody's going to tell me what's going on. You know, and I was so sensitized to the thing. I mean, I've never been so captivated by movies when I saw that, saw that film. Uh, so working with Wally Fister, who is our DP and who has, you know, he, yeah, he shoots all the Batman and, uh, what was the one he did? The big one that he won the Oscar for last year, not the matrix. It's the other inception. inception yeah. Uh, you know, he, he, he does this kind of stuff, but his background is in like news and documentary. Hmm. And, um, a and B, he's he's naturally got this noir style. Like yeah. it's it's like you got to stop him from making everything look like Phantom of the Opera. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's like half the face is bright, half the face is. You know, we get into the stadium. He's like, I got an idea. I'm going to turn off half the lights. I'm like. Could not have seen that coming, Wally. Right. He, uh, you know, and I was like a little nervous about it. We did some tests and we looked at it. I was like, you know what? It's okay. Let's, it's okay to, on, on the one hand, the way we're observing the story, the way we're shooting it, and he's a tremendous operator too, uh, that there's enough truthfulness in that. Uh, and in the, in the lighting, it, it's okay. So long as enough of it's grounded in reality that, that you could... You know, we can heighten things. And baseball does not look like that. Right. Very easy to make baseball look like baseball. Just leave the lights on. Yeah. You know, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, he, the way he works is he really subtracts uh, light. Yeah. And um, I, I love it. I think it's beautiful. Okay. Well, it. it's a great film on so many levels. So uh, congratulations. And uh, we uh, hope to see you back here with more. So okay. thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.